I think uh, one of the big questions that I like to think about and that drives our work is the why. Why are we doing this work, right? And above anything, we are an institution of data, we are an institution of science, our faculty at the research drives our institution. And what our faculty are telling us is, you know, we have a decade to really get our house in order. You know, our sustainability work is really about how do we find solutions to these global challenges through our research? How do we create the next generation of change agents through the 5,000 students that graduate from here every year? And how do we work with the community? How do we learn from the community and, and leverage those things and vice versa? Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you organizations that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful organization employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today we have with us Ryan McPherson, Chief Sustainability Officer at University of Buffalo. He helps advance the university's climate action plan. This is where change begins. Welcome, Ryan. He joins us from Buffalo, New York. Well, great video. It's so great to be here. Achieving carbon neutrality is a multi-pronged approach. It cannot be just one thing or the other. Various levels and various initiatives have to be implemented simultaneously. University of Buffalo, UB, has the goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2030. What does it mean to be carbon neutral? Well, that's a great question, right? I mean, climate change is, I think, the challenge of our time. And even before getting into what does it mean, I, I think uh, one of the big questions that I like to think about and that drives our work is the why. Why are we doing this work, right? And above anything, we are an institution of data. We are an institution of science. Our faculty and the research drives our institution. And what our faculty are telling us is, you know, we have a decade to really get our house in order, if you will. Uh, to avoid the most consequential effects of, of a warming planet. And so we think about what does, you know, achieving climate neutrality really mean? For us, it's working to achieve climate neutrality within that decade. And it is really taking responsibility for the emissions that either create or help create and working to mitigate those as best as we possibly can. We do that through a series of 10 different initiatives that are part of UB's 10 and 10, that's kind of our climate action work, and three different integrators. Those 10 areas are run by 10 different university leaders and 10 different committees and action groups that are working in the spheres of mobility, in terms of heating and cooling, in terms of renewable energy, food systems, pricing carbon, all sorts of different things. And then three integrators that work throughout those. The kind of scientific technical part of that, right, which is you want to be able to net out the emissions that you are producing, right? I think we think of it here at the university a little bit more global, which is we need to be responsible for those carbon gases or greenhouse gas equivalents that we are putting into the environment. So it's really about the institutional responsibility and the personal responsibility of mitigating those greenhouse gases down to zero. And UB is, has been on this path for five decades. In fact, the first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970, Ralph Nader, the presidential candidate, 
came and attended this first Earth Day event at UB. A lot of people here over time doing a lot of good work, including what you just cited that really started us. And we actually just had Lois Gibbs back on campus, another kind of monumental part of, I think, the development of the environmental movement, modern environmental movement, Love Canal, and our law school and many others at the university engaged in that, which led through Lois's efforts to the Superfund legislation and law to energy efficiency measures that Walter Simpson, amazing work in our facilities department back in the 80s and 90s, really. You know, our today, when we think about our clean energy advancements that our engineers have done and and the great climate science uh, that's happening at the college and the Department of uh, Geology, you know, really across the boards, our students, faculty, and staff over the last five decades, you know, really trying to move the needle. A lot more work needs to be done, but exists on a foundation, which uh, I personally have the pleasure to work from. So when did you join UB in this role? Yeah, I have a kind of an interesting background. So I came into the university to originally go to law school and to work here after working down in, in D.C. and on the Hill for a little while. As I finished up law school, never thought I'd stay in higher education and was asked to uh, to run our government and community relations efforts here at the university. Did that for about seven or eight years. And then in 2011, I believe it was, when President Tripathi came into uh, the presidency from being provost, wanted to really put his stamp on sustainability and really took the role from being more operations-based to much more university-wide. I was lucky and in the right time at the right place to to move into that role as our chief sustainability officer. It's a really fun role. It's an overwhelming role at times, but it's also very fun because we are about research, teaching, and engagement here at the university. So, you know, our sustainability work is really about how do we find solutions to these global challenges through our research? How do we create the next generation of change agents through the 5,000 students that graduate from here every year? And how do we work with the community? How do we learn from the community and and leverage those things and vice versa? So we really look at it much more holistically. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, our own operations, how do we think of those as a pedagogical teaching and um, modeling behavior? That's really the work that is kind of at the heart of what we do. The role that you play in, the standards, the metrics, in some ways, and even the knowledge that we gain is changing and must have changed since you took over in 2011. What was something which was a very sustainable way of doing something in 2011, which has been negated now? I'll get there through our metrics because we are very lucky in higher education. The sector as a whole has built an incredible metrics program called STARS. So it's the Sustainability Tracking Assessment Rating System. When I talk with some of my business colleagues and corporate sector, they're very jealous of this because that's one of the big challenges right now is, you know, how do you have a clear, transparent way of measuring in the business world? Well, for us, STARS is, if you think about it is for lead is to buildings, STARS is for higher education. So there's four main areas, something like 80 different credits. The technical manual is, you know, 800 pages. And it really helps us define what sustainability is and what is best practice to strive towards. So it's an excellent uh, program. It's made by higher ed for higher ed. There's a technical advisory committee that continuously updates it. And so what you've seen over the last 10 years is a moving of the needle. This work is getting more and more specific and complicated, if you will. 
I think one of the things, if you just look at climate and counting carbon, <laughs> kind of the, the dirty little secret, if you will, with counting carbon is, is that the better you get at counting, the worse you kind of do, because you're learning to count for things that you originally weren't counting, right? I'll give you an example of that. You know, counting carbon in food is very, very difficult. If you think about eating a blueberry muffin, well, where do the blueberries come from? Where's the flour, the sugar, all of these different supply chain issues, and what's the carbon on each of those? It hasn't really been until recently that people have been able to start counting that with some credibility. The university has jumped into that and for the first time ever just calculated our food carbon footprint and has been rolling that into our larger carbon footprint. So your footprint gets bigger because we're including a sector that we didn't have the technology, if you will, to really be able to do that. I think that's a great example because even when I started podcasting, we had on our show the Farmling Project and they talked about food waste. And even at that point in time, I was like, produce biodegrades. And yes, I don't want food to waste and I'm not happy, but it's not causing that much harm to the environment. But when you start counting and you see the tons of food gets wasted pre-market and post after the grocery stores throw it away and even consumers throw it away, throw away their leftovers or their rotten fruits and vegetables. It's a pretty large number. So as you say, as we start measuring, we actually are doing worse in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I joke about it. We aren't. We're doing better because we're assessing it. But it does make things appear bigger because we're getting more accurate. You know, food is a perfect example. It's one of those ones that I find really interesting because I think roughly 25% of an American's uh, carbon footprint is food related, right? And it is the one that when people, you know, say like, well, what can I do? What are the things I can do, right? How do I get this down? I don't have enough money to buy a Tesla or this or that. The food piece is one that is like the easiest thing to do when you think about how can you wean yourself down off of red meat, right? Which is such a much, much higher on that carbon count. It is a moving target, I think, in this work. Carbon counting is just one, but there are so many other areas where we should be getting more and more tougher, if you will, on ourselves because the challenge is so vast. So UB has many initiatives and we talked about the 10 of 10. What are the 10 components or sectors or sections in your climate action plan? We've had a climate action plan for about 13 years, 15 years, somewhere in there. Rebooted it in um, April of 2020, so about two or three weeks into COVID. We launched that work, and, and the idea was that we have 10 years to really get down to climate neutrality. And that that's uh, set by our scientists, not set by some master detailed strategy that the university has or any of our other partners. It's what our scientists tell us we have before you know we run out of time. So those 10 areas that make up our work, each area is led by a university leader and there's a working group between like uh, eight and, and 15 people that are on that faculty, student, staff who have expertise in that area. The 10 areas are, one is putting a price on pollution, so trying to price carbon internally in our budget systems. That's headed up by our university controller, Beth Corey, who does an amazing, amazing job. Second one, not all electricity is created equal. So these are kind of catchy names. They're not names for people who are in the industry. They're people who are like our students, our 30,000 students, so that they can really hopefully digest the topic. And that's about getting our electricity from clean and renewable resources. 
electrifying our ride or getting moving to electrification of the mobility sector, keeping it cozy and green. And that's really transitioning our heating source over from natural gas over to electrification. A lot of talk about that right now. New York State just passed their budget yesterday or 2 a.m. this morning when we recorded this. And, uh, you know, mandate statewide as we move forward that no new natural gas to heat buildings. So that's uh, very important for us. Uh, waste not is our fifth area, and that involves all things material. So yes, recycling and food composting and things of that nature, but also do you need the product in the first place and thinking about what we buy. Flipping the switch, which is our uh, behavior change, us messy, silly humans. How do we get people to do things that we need them to do? And then thinking stock of our food and investing. So that's our food systems that we talked about a little bit earlier. Responsible investing that our foundation does. So how do we align our values with, with the investments for the endowment? And then increasing efficiency, which is the technical side of conservation. Those efficiencies that are more on an engineering scale. And then our final and last one is this idea of investing locally to provide flexibility. So this is a localized offset program that we are trying to create over time that will account for, you know, probably no more than 15% of those emissions that we find very, very, not just hard, but impossible to drive down to zero for mission critical activities. Think um, when our faculty hop on a plane, um, right? We can't can't get them to the West Coast another way right now within a reasonable time period. So an offset program that, that we try to invest uh, in our local uh, community here to, 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 to help move forward. Uh, these are all the 10 different areas, again, that we are trying to advance as our strategy to get down to zero. And then there are three integrators that run through all of those, climate justice, resilience, and this one called Making It Happen, which is really about leveraging the university itself, its faculty, its experiential learning, using the university as a living laboratory, if you will, to, will to help uh, advance these studies. So the UBs 10 and 10, they are aligned with the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. Yes, I would say that they're complementary to them. If you take, you know, SDG 13, you know, taking climate action, sustainable development goal 13, these 10 are a way to really achieve that. But I would say that our main kind of governing principles of our work are around UBs 10 and 10, the sustainable development goals, and then kind of that triple bottom line, right, of thinking about those three areas, the planet, our people, and our intellectual capital and equity, and penciling things out in terms of our overall budget, our overall uh, economic system that we're working in. Those three kind of areas help point to our true north in our work. So let's pick few of the 10 of 10 and dissect it further and see how you leading that initiative with the help of President Tripathi are able to achieve the goals and assess and measure those goals. So let's start with renewables. How are you doing it? Because most of the buildings are pretty old. They are. And it makes it very challenging because none of them were designed for this. <laughs> right. So the renewable one is one where we've been spending a lot of our time, mainly because it's a springboard for many of the other ones. So electrification of the vehicle or heat, electrification of the heating system. You've got to have a clean renewable source to pull from in order for that to work. So we focused on that early and we have two parts. To, well, we kind of have three parts to this. Number one, 
we purchase renewable energy certificates off the market. And so we send a very strong message to the market. This is important for us. And that helps us with our carbon accounting. That is a bridging strategy for us. And it's meant to really help us get in the game. But that is not our ultimate goal. The other two areas are our goal. And one is our on-site generation and then off-site generation. So we just finished a large project here at the university, about 15 megawatts worth of electricity. And that is five major ground mount solar arrays and another four rooftops across on the, on the north campus. So that produces, again, about 15 megawatts of power. That's quite a bit of, of power, but it's still not. Let me give you two perspectives on that. We believe that is one of the largest renewable energy generations, higher ed, on one's campus, on their own land, if you will. But the downside of that is, you know, it's still really only about five, six, seven percent of our overall demand. We use a lot of electricity here at the university, our wet labs, our, our big energy hogs, a lot of other things as, as well. So to kind of complement that within the renewable energy space is an offsite buy and purchasing renewable energy from other renewable energy projects. And we have done a few RFPs on that. We've got back some different pricing. The energy market has been very, very volatile, especially during the pandemic. We actually had one all set to go. But the way in which New York State procurement law kind of works is it has to go through the regulatory process uh, to Albany to be reviewed, et cetera. So we weren't able to respond within the time that the market demands. And so we haven't been able to make that work yet. We're working very hard on that. And our goal is to really firm up that part of the process. But for us, the on-site renewable energy is really important because it sends a really clear communication signal to our community that this is important work, that we need to take personal responsibility for our own emissions. So our renewable energy work is really kind of critical there. I also like the work that our pricing carbon group has been doing, which is you know, modeling what we've seen, quite frankly, in the corporate sector, companies like Microsoft putting an internal price on carbon and many others, hedging risk, like knowing that that is coming. And so how do you incorporate that? And how do you incentivize sustainability and climate behavior through power of the dollar? So we have a few different phases that we are working on within uh, that pricing carbon kind of work, starting with just getting our travel kind of, you know, in place and building awareness and education and metrics and purchasing offsets for that travel to thinking about new capital construction and how we put a dollar value on carbon saved within that. So can we, can we construct, you know, carbon neutral buildings, which we are desperately working on and we're doing well on scope one and two emissions, scope three, we have a little bit more to go on. And then how do we think about reverse budgeting? So for instance, you're a dean and you have, you know, let's say Jacobs or Alfiero Center, right? Those buildings that are here on campus. Right now, the university pays that utility bill. So there's very little incentive for people in those buildings to conserve electricity other than it's the right thing to do. And so what we're looking at is a reverse budgeting process where we provide each of the localities an appropriate amount of funds that might have been equal to what was or, or maybe not even funds, but usage amounts that was equal to the year before, and then offering incentive uh, back to the unit if they save um, some or 
that they have to contribute. So we're trying to align accountability and responsibility together to, to really drive uh, change. But before you go to energy consumption, you probably have to make the buildings more energy efficient. How are you doing that in these 100-year-old buildings, some of them? Yeah, you would think so. The logic that you just shared is the prevailing view on that. I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian on that issue. We have 200 buildings across the North and South Campus. I wish most of them were our older buildings. Most of them were built during the 70s and 60s. You know, it's a different type of construction. On the South Campus, we have buildings that are 150 years old, right? And they are beautiful old buildings. And we are doing tons of, of retrofits with those right now. Uh, but the bones are still really great in those. So I'll give you an example. Crosby Hall, uh, we are in the middle of doing right now. We have just completely gutted that building. And it is a full envelope uh, redo. It is a heat pump. So we are no longer connected in with any of the natural gas, steam tunnels, etc. And it is a different way of really powering that building. So Yes, the challenge comes with this. 200 buildings, about $575 million in deferred maintenance to kind of get those buildings up to just good functioning place. And, and we get about $25 million a year from the state to work on those. If you do the math, right, um, we're off <laughs> by quite a bit. Part of what my colleague Tonga Pham, who heads up facilities, and I really kind of thought about is when you balance the reality of funding with the urgency of how we need to take action, what's the best strategy here? If resources were unlimited, sure, we'd want to work on the envelope of all 200 of those buildings. And we are as we go through. But, you know, the cost of electricity in Western New York is actually not that bad compared to a lot of other places. And most of that is because of cheap hydropower from Niagara Falls, where, you know, you can get it down to seven, eight cents a kilowatt hour. Same thing with doing renewables here. The projects that we have done we are penciling out at roughly seven, eight cents a kilowatt hour. So part of that is, yes, you do want to try to conserve that energy as much as possible. But if that's not an option and you don't have the capital to do that, sometimes actually just buying a little bit more, even though we want to be judicious with that, but reducing those emissions by plowing that in right away from a carbon savings perspective is not such a bad strategy. And it's localized. So it depends on where you are. If you're in New York City, that would not make sense, right? Because it's a 22 cents a kilowatt hour, et cetera. So it would be better to weatherize. You talked about solar energy and solar panels. What about heat pumps and geothermal? Yeah, a huge part of that making it cozy and green uh, working group that I was talking about. Right now, we've got our strategy. on, And this is the one that keeps me up at night, quite frankly. This is the one that you know, back of envelope calculations for our university is probably about a billion dollars to, uh, to, to implement. Because this is changing the entire infrastructure of how we heat our buildings, right? And that was built on a very, very different system over our history. And so we are working to electrify those. That is the strategy. And as you indicated, through heat pumps and most likely aided by geothermal wells and, and other techniques. On the South Campus right now, we have started doing that with each building that we're rehabbing. So when we go in, that is part of the process and turning that over. But we also are working with Wendell companies on a South Campus uh, electrification um, plan right now. We've been working over the past 10 months for a full campus-wide plan to transition over. How do we do that? Through what technology? How much time? What is the implementation plan? 
um, et cetera. I'm very excited about that work. That will be finished in July, and then we will go out and start trying to find capital to implement that plan. At the same time, we're putting together um, an application to NYSERDA to help us uh, pencil out the funding for a North Campus electrification plan as well, so that as we're building new buildings like the School of Engineering new building, um, the new Rec Center and Wellness, that we're driving towards a common solution. So it's not just buildings, right? But buildings are hooking into a larger system, loops, steam, or cooling loops and, and, and heating loops, if you will. That's the renewable part and, and maybe the facilities and building part of your sustainability goal. The other part, which most campuses see, is food waste because of just volume of people eating three meals a day in this dense area. How are you tackling it first? The quality of food is one important factor. Then how do you prevent students from just piling food on their plate and not finishing it? And how do you manage food coming into the cafeterias or the restaurants that are on campus? So that's a great question. I've got some great colleagues who work on this issue, both from an academic perspective, people like Dr. Samina Raja, who are preeminent in her field of food planning and, and great staff here at the university, as well as our campus dining and shops. So they've been leaders in kind of the end of the pipe, if you will, taking food waste and composting that for quite a long time now and a, and a good long history of that. But I think where your question kind of went is that the most important part is starting at the top, right? What are we eating and how is that getting here, right? The number one, the big kind of wake-up call to me is, you know, lots of times we think that the localization of the food system is its main carbon footprint. That's actually not true. The main part of the carbon footprint is where that, where are you eating on the carbon food chain, right? A person who had a not a great diet their whole lives and lots of red meat and other protein things was really a huge wake-up call to me personally uh, to kind of see what damage that does uh, when it comes to, to our climate. And uh, there's been a lot of work that our students are doing here to educate themselves. And Campus and Dining and Shops has just implemented this really great new kind of carbon counter on our food. And we're so excited about it because, you know, when you walk in and you think about, well, what's the price? What, how many calories? And now it also has an indicator of how much carbon. So, for instance, uh, something like red meat would have a bigger carbon impact number versus spinach. Exactly. We're not trying to judge, force, et cetera, right? We're trying to provide people options because that's how change happens. Change does not happen when you tell someone what to do and how to move, things like that. It happens when you are able to have choices and really kind of provide a model, if you will, right? And so peer-to-peer -peer and students doing this is actually the most effective way to get that type of change. So the type of food has been really important. And then tactics, as you were kind of insinuating, the trays have not been in the dining hall for over a decade now. If you have a tray, you put more on your plate than you're ever going to eat. Lots of education around that too, but also the serving sizes and getting those right. So we always welcome students to come back up and get more, especially our student athletes. But, you know, think about what you're taking uh, to begin with. So that's kind of on the front end of it. On the back end of it, there's kind of two strategies right now when it comes to our food waste. One is let's make sure that we're getting good unused food into the mouths of those who need it. 
So both students that are going hungry on our own campus, but also in our community. So we have a great food recovery network, which is really student run, which works to capture those things at the end of the night that are not, you know, like we have too much. You can't always nail it perfectly, right? So anything that's going to be going to waste that is edible gets off to the city mission or other different NGOs to the homeless population or those in need. And then for that, things that are not edible or waste that's on the plate, all of that goes into our composting program and stream here and is turned into soil amendment. And then the final piece on this that I'd mention is um, we are moving towards a campus-wide program of food recycling, if you will. And that being so, not just in the dining halls with the students. Lots of times we think about students and their waste. It's like, we have a lot of staff and faculty here. And, you know, what are they eating? What are they bringing in? What's being wasted? So, again, not just in the dining halls and in our restaurants, but campus-wide. How do we get organics out of the waste stream? Uh, how do we segregate those and then get them into the soil amendment and others? So have you seen change in the food habits based on your carbon information attached to each dish? Yeah, the verdict is out because we just started doing the notification and the information on that. So check back with me in a few months here or next year, and we'll see how that's working. I will say that change takes time. And even to get internally with our stakeholders, even to get people comfortable to be able to put that label on, like that took time. So then to get students to a place where it's moving, But we usually find that there are kind of two factors in that that drive that change. One is, you know, what is the perceived level of exertion? How hard do I think it will be to change? Then the other one, you know, we're social creatures. What will my tribe think of me? Is this a cool thing or am I going to be ostracized, et cetera? So watching that and watching the students move that is really quite fascinating. And you don't want to, like you said earlier, seem like you're targeting certain eating habits or certain dietary practices that people have grown up with. Yeah, that's really important because there are issues of equity and inclusivity here too, let alone eating disorders and things of that nature, which we have to be very sensitive and careful to, right? It's interesting. I'm, I'm not talking out at school here, but our partners in campus dining and shops are, they also have a business, right? They're a separate entity and they've got to pencil things out. So like, that line between nudging behavior, but also offering what your audience wants. There's a balance there, right? That needs to be, uh, that needs to be struck and nudged and pulled and, and all those things. Let's move on to one more crucial component in on campus and for student activities off campus, transportation. So we have golf carts or other facilities or university vehicles, which are going around the campus all day, even the police, the maintenance crew, the landscapers, then the students have to move from one place to another. And the students have to get out of the campus into the community for entertainment, for just going out, right? How are you tackling the impact of transportation on climate change for the UB community? And another big sector in that uh, list that you were doing is our faculty and staff commuting in every day and, and not. That's part of my responsibility to get those emissions down. That's actually the biggest one. You know, mobility in general is our biggest sector right now because we've gotten our electricity down and our natural gas is slowly coming down. But our transportation, our mobility is the biggest uh, sector of greenhouse gases for the university. And I think in the U.S., I think that eclipsed uh, about three years ago 
that became the largest one as well. So a lot of different strategies that we're, that we're both leveraging to do that. Some, some that, we're, that we have been for a while, some that we are, and some that we will be doing. Um, what about having more accessible public transportation? Maybe reducing the number of parking spaces on campus. I'm not advocating that because I will get major backlash. It will. <laughs> but uh, it is an option, right? I think also UB is a commuter college. A lot of students commute from home. So that's the other reason maybe that the transportation consumption of energy is high. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, uh, roughly 7,000, 8,000 students on campus um, here. So it's not, I wouldn't call it per se a commuter school, but there are a lot of students who live in off-campus housing close and they are driving in a mile or two or three or whatever. That does bring it up. I think that the balance for us is, yes, we're doing... We move a lot of students around via bus, via public transportation. Our system and the city's the region's uh, system, we have inter-campus buses as well as buses between our campuses. A lot of those different pieces, all the things you would think about, carpooling programs, Zipcar, all of those. I think what we have really realized is that ultimately, yes, a metro that is connecting the north campus to the south campus in downtown, and that is in the works, but but we are, you know, a decade out from that, right? And so by the time that whole whole piece plays out. So for us, we have to really balance, I think, the idea of what things do we take on, what are the political costs, and how quickly, if the goal is how quickly can we get the mobility sector down to zero, well then what are the strategies we do on that? If I chose a strategy of taking parking lots offline. <laughs> and I would love to do that personally, but I probably wouldn't have a job for too much longer because there's so much resistance to that across the board. And people will sometimes talk about, you know, wanting to commute green, but then when it comes to actually having to walk two, 300 more feet, it's, you know, it's not quite aligned. So what we really have put our kind of effort and time behind is trying to walk a middle line there and moving to the electrification of the vehicle. And so we have ramped up electric vehicle charging across the university in the last two years, put 15 times as much options out there, good chunk on the North campus and the South campus and downtown. We are moving to install our first fleet EV charging lot that will have over 56 plugs um, to, to rotate vehicles through that. And, you know, over time, there's the potential of thinking uh, through our pricing carbon group of how, if you're not driving in an EV or if you're not coming in through public transit, you know, there may be a carbon tax on that specific commute in that then an offset is purchased for that commute in. That's years down the road, but these are strategies that we're looking at because at the end of the day, if someone is driving in an internal combustible engine, in order for us to achieve climate neutrality, we've got to deal with that somehow. This is the rub, whether it's food or transportation, there is a systems change that the university is trying to make. But at the same point, there's individual change that people need to make as well. And we're not going to get there unless we have both systems and individual change. So we are about seven years from your goal. How achievable is it? How practical is it in your mind in the progress that you've made thus far to, for you to be able to achieve that goal? Or would you need an extension? 
Well, that's a great question. Depending on how one counts and under what rules. Because the way you count the carbon may change from today to, <laughs> to the 2030. So you'll be, you'll be set back. That's right. As we were discussing earlier, right, uh, from our original baseline, we're about 35% of the way there, right? I always kind of think of it this way. That's great. Like we've made some progress there and that is mainly through our electricity switching over. But we have a lot more to do. And you know how change works. First, you do the easy stuff and then you do the hard stuff, right? So a lot of that low-hanging fruit of uh, conservation projects and renewables and things like those are those pieces we've, we've pretty much done. A huge chunk of this is moving off of natural gas from heating. And as I said earlier, again, don't hold me to this number, but back of envelope, that's like a billion dollars. So how do we do that, right? Well, we start by doing one building at a time with a campus-wide plan on each of them and moving those through. I think the answer to the question is it's going to depend on what resources and flexibility are provided via the state, as well as many other sources uh, for the university to do this work. One thing that's a little challenging sometimes with entities like our own is we're not free to do everything that we want. We are part of the state of New York. And so therefore we are subject to the speed and regulation, which state agencies work. Now, if you compare that to the UCAL system, for example, where they are not state agencies, there is the flexibility to bond out straight to the market and leverage capital to be able to do the types of projects that I've been talking about. So their tools are really directly related, I think, to your, to your question too. What do you mean by UCAL system? So the University of California university system, right? Like they are governed and set up very differently from the state university of New York system. Those campuses have tools and are regulated just very differently. And as I said, one example is, is that they can bond out directly to the market, right? So if they want to do a public-private partnership, they can go do that. We need an act of the state legislature to allow us to do that, right? And very specific to that. Tuition is lots of times determined at the university college level. Ours is determined by the state legislature, right? Who just rescinded the proposal that the governor put forth the other day. It's not good or bad, but there are just different constraints that are put on. I mean, the positive side of this is we are in a state, the state of New York, I think has some of the best climate laws and, and continued regulatory framework to address climate change and all these other challenges. So we are very like lucky in that sense. But thinking about how we get there is we need to do as much as we possibly can, as quickly as we can, not get overwhelmed by thinking about, okay, you know, are we going to get there by that time? I don't know the answer to that. We chose a very aggressive deadline because that's what our scientists told us we needed to do. So we could easily say, you know, no, our climate neutrality goal is 2050 or 2040, which is where most of the other entities are. And it might take us a little bit longer than 2030. I think we need to keep charging ahead that sense of urgency for that 2030 goal as, as, as much as we can. And I would encourage everyone to do that because of the unintended consequences of what will happen if we're not able to keep things to you know, 1.5 degrees or even two degrees uh, centigrade below those warming levels. Wishing you all the best. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on Mindful Businesses. This has been enlightening. We've had insights into UV's sustainability efforts and goals. Thank you again. 
Well, thank you so much, Vidya. It's a pleasure and uh, love the podcast and hope you keep it moving forward. Thank you again. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Iyer. We would love to hear from you. Send us an email at info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Roseanne Kurian is our marketing assistant. Ketan Karat is our podcast editor. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashreja. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.